Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. It is indeed one thing to make an experience personal, individualized, and in that personal, very intimate, I should say, and with that then individual, very unique or tailored to a specific and that would be the one, the only, you. I would love it if I could do that in uh, context to not only my personal life, treat people that way. I think that's high ordered. But I certainly aspire to that on a continuous basis in professional context. I want it to be intimate That would be very, very uh, open (laughs) Uh, without barriers or walls, intimacy on an emotional, psychological level. And I want it to be unique. I want to understand you as a person. I want to relate to you as a person. Now, for that to happen, I think that there has to be some reciprocity. Uh, I have to be willing to contribute nearly, maybe not entirely, and certainly if entirely means that I do not have to do it with such conscious awareness, I don't know that I can do it fully because I have to retain some sense of boundary, lest at some point <laughs> I might cross some line in terms of uh, making it about me and not about you, and that's not what we It needs to be all about you. But on the other side of that, why would you want to talk with somebody who really kept some degree of professional distance, uh, maybe maintained such the degree of objectivity that they weren't talking about you as a person, you as an individual, but maybe more so you as a statistic, as a number. And with that, and I think there is a bit of peril, I think there's legitimate risk of such that's what I'm about to say happening, lest they even treat you as just simply a diagnosis. Psychology Today, September, October of 2023, The Intimate Connection of Therapist and Client by Jonathan Shedler, Ph.D., It is impossible for two people to meet and discuss the most private details of one of their lives week after week without stirring up strong feelings in both people. When psychotherapy is ongoing and real, it touches the full spectrum of emotional life of each participant, care and concern, affection, attraction, repulsion, joy, sorrow, anger, Indifference, competitiveness, resentment, spite, envy, everything. Powerful feelings necessarily arise in intimate human relationships and meaningful psychotherapy is an intimate relationship. In some ways, it is like other intimate relationships, bringing out the best and the worst in us. But in other ways, it's like no other relationship will ever experience. If psychotherapy is meaningful, it ultimately changes both people. Sigmund Freud was the first modern psychotherapist and first to understand this. He wrote in 1905, 
No one who, like me, conjures up the most evil of those half-tamed demons that inhabit the human beast and seeks to wrestle with them can expect to come through the struggle unscathed. As it was then, so it has been for every generation of psychotherapists since. Contrary to popular belief, psychotherapists are not trained to somehow turn off their feelings toward their patients. Even if that were possible, it would make us less than fully human. What psychotherapists do, rather, is cultivate the ability to fully feel our feelings without acting on them and without burdening our patient with them. To use a bit of therapy jargon, we contain those feelings. This means allowing ourselves to feel them without letting them hijack our attention or start running the show. Skilled psychotherapists also learn to use the feelings that arise in the psychotherapy relationship in a disciplined way as a potential source of information about patients and how to help them. We understand that the feelings patients evoke in us often contain crucial information the patient cannot yet put into words. For example, therapists treating narcissistically self-absorbed patients often feel a sense of being invisible, as if their presence is superfluous. Beginners might try to tune that feeling out or find themselves withdrawing emotionally. A skilled clinician, however, will note that unpleasant feeling and get curious about what's happening in the therapy relationship that's eliciting it. They might realize the patient has been consistently ignoring their comments, carrying on as if they hadn't spoken. They might remember the patient came to treatment because their intimate relationships never last. And they may or they might connect some dots. Perhaps the patient's relationships go sour because they make others feel invisible too. At the right time, they might bring up the topic. I'm noticing that there's not much room for me to participate in this discussion. I was wondering if you've been aware of that, too. It takes years to learn to work this way, and the learning never ends. It's work for a lifetime. It begins with in-depth psychotherapy for the psychotherapist to begin or to become comfortable with the darker corners of our minds. We learn to understand and accept difficult feelings most people habitually shut out. The purpose of personal psychotherapy for therapists, one purpose anyway, is to become comfortable and familiar navigating the terrain of emotional life. Finally, to safely work with powerful emotional forces, those half-tamed demons, Certain conditions are necessary. They constitute the therapy frame, which, like a picture frame, delineates the action of therapy from life outside of sessions. Some have likened the frame to highway guardrails that prevent us from driving over a cliff. A therapist who knows how to maintain the therapy frame will have a therapist-patient relationship with you and only a therapist-patient relationship. They will not see you socially or become your friend, lover, or business partner. They will set up a regular appointment schedule so you know exactly when you will see each other. They will start and end sessions on time. They will do psychotherapy during sessions 
and at no other time or place. They will exercise great care about disclosing their own feelings or discussing their own lives, never forgetting that your therapy sessions are for your emotional benefit, not theirs. They will generally avoid physical contact, making it clear that in psychotherapy, feelings are expressed in words, not actions. The boundaries of the therapy frame may feel cold or arbitrary at first, but they reflect the hard-won wisdom generations of therapists who learned the hard way that they are necessary for doing deep emotional work. The paradox is that the frame provides safety and security needed for both people to fully engage in the process and for the patient to relax into the therapy and truly open up. The more secure the boundaries, the more freedom there is within them. For example, it's safe to delve into fantasies only when you're sure they will stay in the realm of fantasy and not be acted on. It's safe to let your guard down, explore painful thoughts and feelings when you know the session has a clear beginning and end. When you know that no matter what, you can count on the therapist to be there at the next appointment, exactly as planned. Then you can allow yourself to fully experience your fear of abandonment or express your rage. You can discuss your fantasies of kissing your therapist or punching them, or of being kissed or punched by them, only when you know There won't be any actual kisses or punches. Psychotherapy done well is not an intellectual experience. It's a powerful emotional experience. And in the right professional hands, it can change your life. And again, the article is entitled The Intimate Connection of Therapist and Client by Jonathan Shedler, Ph.D. And Jonathan is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as an author, consultant, and speaker. You can find it in Psychology Today, September-October 2023 edition. Now, it was Freud who also came up with the psychological concepts of transference, countertransference, with which Jonathan Shedler does not actually reference or, for the most part, get into. It does have to do with feelings. It has to do with relationship. It has to do with intimacy. It has to do with two individuals that share a common dimension of very personal private space. And in that, it has to do with objectivity and the ability for the psychotherapist to know where the boundaries really should lie, must lie, will lie, not only from an ethical standpoint, but from a personal standpoint. Which does not mean the therapist cannot be friendly. It does not mean the therapist cannot be possibly at times as a friend. It does not mean there won't be some attachments that will be made socially as a result of that. It will never be sexual and it will never be with sexual feelings on the therapist's part, and should that ever arise, then the therapist should disqualify themselves because that in and of itself is such the slippery slope and at times is so, so, so very difficult to navigate properly in objectivity. It's better to, in my opinion, walk away from that 
as soon as those feelings might be identified, especially if they're reciprocal, than to stay in that, that space. But transference would be the permission <laughs> that clients, patients, can put whatever feelings they want to put on the therapist. Countertransference would be the therapist understanding the patient is not responsible for establishing those boundaries. It is the therapist's responsibility once more, not only ethically, but professionally and in that personally. Otherwise, the therapist can become part of a dynamic of abuse, which really in the less, least of forms or fashions would be just to somehow exploit the relationship for some personal gain. Now, a lot of people don't like the idea that you have to pay for psychotherapy. And with that then, don't like the notion that it's transactional. I will make this case for it, which does not necessarily mean that that is either a good thought or a bad thought, either endorsed, endorsable, if that's a word, or to be discounted. But the transaction takes place outside of the therapy relationship. It is business. But the good news in that, then, is there's no excuse because you've paid for it because there is already a measure of transaction, because you know what that looks like in those least or lesser of transactional terms, there should never be any exploitation of the patient. And with that, then, when you go into that context of that therapy relationship with your psychotherapist, you've paid for it. It's not free. There's no obligations attached to it. Maybe you can do some of that with a reciprocity in mind. Again, there's common courtesy. There is not only the legal ethics that frame it, as the highway guardrails would go, but there is then just the dimension of people shouldn't people treat people, other people that way. There shouldn't be abuse ever or exploitation. And should it come to anyone's awareness, there may be the risk of that, as I was speaking of, the sexual feelings. But it shouldn't be that way for anything that would represent the therapist having advantage or gaining outside of just the professional dimensions of that monetary exchange. That's where you pay. That's where that ends. That's good news for the patient, and really, it's good news for the therapist because it's clear as part of those boundaries. It's a fee for service. It's a professional service, much like your physician. But with that in mind, there is the additional responsibility outside of the currency exchanged for the therapist to also objectively do all of this analysis and not require the patient to do that, except when it comes time for that generation of insight and awareness that might be necessary to engender cooperation or to help the patient understand the steps to a mutually agreed upon. And I should probably say that too. The mutually agreed upon, actually, is a point where there has to be rapport, not only relationship rapport, but treatment plan, individualized service plan sort of rapport where the patient and the therapist 
You can invite the patient into the realm of the objective, the third person dimension, that therapists also, we're first person, but we're also operating out of, in objectivity, a third person reference. But I still believe if there's too much emotional attachment, if you're just a diagnosis or a disorder, if it's just about money, it won't work. If it does work, it will be kind of like getting a speeding ticket. (laughs) It just works as long as you see a police officer. Or as may be then, I'm not going to do that again, the pain that you feel in the pocketbook, as they used to call it. That's not really what we want. We want there to be some sort of synergistic relationship that includes both emotion, as with motive, as well as some thought, some rational agreement. And the only way to really get both the subjective and the objective is psychotherapy. That's what we're trained in. That's the distinction between all your best friends all those people you are really close to outside of the therapeutic encounter, and why therapists can't cross over into that realm. Because once we do, if we should ever, it would have to be with the end or the termination of the relationship. And even then, it's not right. It's not a good idea to do that. It's just very difficult to shift to friend. Because there's personal investment and the primary, (laughs) the initial, the elemental structure, it takes a lot of changing. And it's so easy to slip back into that, not only on the therapist's part, but the patient's part. And that feels a little bit like you're (laughs) sort of being treated like a patient. That's the meaning and the negative and when you otherwise are hoping and expecting it could be more of an equal relationship in that way. It always should be you first. If there is any unequal dimensions on the therapist's part, it would only be in the professionalism. But that's really what we do in psychotherapy. We try to establish that level of communication. It's not just normal (laughs) communications as with then some degree of communion or relationship, it is of the highest order. And though it may seem like that makes it a bit sterile because it's got all that science behind it, and it should, it doesn't have to be. It just has to be objective so that the truth remains clear to both parties with once more the principal responsibility falling to the therapist. That's the transference, counter-transference dynamic. And Sigmund Freud, (laughs) whether you know of him or don't know of him, and should you know of him, endorse any of the things he got into or didn't. And with that, Freud was very much into those sexual sort of connections. Uh, And he believed you could do that innocently enough and do that in a proper way as to not contaminate it with the therapist's personal feelings. I don't. I'm not saying I don't think that psychoanalysis, which is Freud's uh, principal theoretical sort of the technique that goes with his theoretical orientation of psychoanalytics, but I just 
don't believe that that's an appropriate place to ever be. And once that's acknowledged, I think it's time to make a transfer. I think that there's been far too much that has been to the discredit over years and years of psychotherapy, and we're finally getting to a place where we appreciate that does not. Now, you can need to be in, should not be in. You're, again, somewhat run-of-the-mill, if I could call it, normal psychotherapy relationship. Now, if you're there for sex therapy... You're obviously going to be talking about that, but that should be more like if you're uh, inclined to go to a gynecologist, whatever you self-identify as as far as gender, it should be the same thing. But even then, that's murky waters at times, and why I think anymore these days the standard of care in practice seems to be more, at least passed through a phase, of feminine female doctors, but again, because we're living in an age and time when you can self-identify regardless of your gender, your biological sex, I'm not sure that that whole idea of male-female neutralizing that really applies, but I'm glad I don't have to contend with that. I can just say, we're probably going in the wrong way. And if it should ever come up, just like anything else that I might recognize as countertransference on the therapist's part, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to discuss it. I'm going to present it. We're going to have an objective conversation. We're going to have it in that same sort of way of rapport, treatment planning. And it will be with evidence, empirical thought and research methodology, studies in mind. If you don't get that, I would be a little bit suspicious. Now, you could say, well, not all therapy relationships are going to have countertransference that's going to be needful to disclose. Possibly so. But if you don't feel that you can sit down with your therapist and that person give you all the details of that perspective that they're approaching you from that is empirically research evidence-based and with that objective inclusive of a diagnosis, I'd be a little cautious to go too far without at least bringing that up and finding out how they choose to explain that. And it speaks a lot to their comfort or their confidence in navigating that relationship and whether or not there would be too much of the subjective either way that once again would make that not only difficult but render it vulnerable to some sort of abuse, misuse, maybe isn't a more appropriate way of saying it, or with that idea of exploitation. Uh, it just It's just another way of taking that off the table. That's what you're going to get when you come see me. I believe, again, that's what you should look for when you seek professional help from anyone, regardless of their discipline, and why we bring you the podcast. (laughs) That's so that you know what we know and what we know we're supposed to be abiding by. And that should be a disclosure. That's at some level, when you (laughs) consent for care, that should be one of those disclosures, along with their theoretical orientation, what they like to do, again, how all of this fits together when it comes to interventions and treatment strategies and techniques as tied to a diagnosis, as tied to a treatment plan. If that's not there, or if you have confusion about any of that, ask. 
It should be there. Maybe it's there for whatever reason it didn't get overtly stated, but ask. So everybody's on the same page. And it should remain there. Should there be modifications or changes along the way to the treatment plan? Or even so, should there be more clarity of the diagnoses? Then that should be part of an ongoing conversation, good communication. But it's all the therapist's responsibilities to do that. But as a good consumer, you know, now that you know. If you were to check out the Psychology Today website, there's a directory of vetted providers who have maintained license and received uh, not only a degree of education, but certification oftentimes, as well as licensure that assures you they understand all of this and the best efforts and attempts being made to give you some confidence that the person you're speaking to or should you be looking at several individuals to speak to, you can kind of do, even on the Psychology Today directory, a bit of a comparative analysis yourself of who you want to see, what their theoretical persuasion would be, their orientation, Male, female, if that's important to you, and if it's not, then making sure it's not too important to the therapist, even. I would encourage you to uh, at least see that as one of the places that you go to when you're looking for a therapist. But I'm sure that that's, again, not the only place. I know that for a fact. And ask your primary care doctor. Ask those individuals that you trust. Ask your neighbor if you trust them enough to tell them that uh, you may be looking for a therapist. You'll be surprised. A lot of the folks that you know may and have actually gone to a therapist and sat down and engaged in psychotherapy. It is a very common sort of occurrence or procedure these days, since we're emphasizing, it seems, more so than ever before, not only one's health, but one's mental health or their behavioral health concerns. That's why, too, once again, we always close the podcast with thanking you for joining us, as I'm doing right now, on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and wanting to wish you the best in health and behavioral health. But also letting you know, should you have any desire to communicate, you can text through call 304-523-WORD-9673. You can also uh, email at drmdclay at thewordhouse.com. You can find us online at thewordhouse.com. We're on Facebook and we're at on YouTube at The Word House. Any of those means, any of those ways to get a hold of us, uh, you can access us and we'd be more than excited in a positive, healthy, ethical sort of way to reach back out to you and uh, strike up a conversation. But again, we drop the podcast weekly. And should you never do that, at least I'm hoping that you can come back and visit us again and join us for our next edition. Again, in the meantime, I just want to say thank you.